0: Thank you, Landon, and satellite people. I loved it this morning. It's good to have uh, such uh, good people filling in and uh, leading us in worship this morning. I also want to thank Victoria for sitting beside me this morning, proving to you all that I'm not radioactive. <laughs> Obviously, she had seen this because she'd seen my wife sit beside me without effect. And uh, so it's okay to sit next to the pastor. It's good to be home. We've been away two weeks. It has been so weird. And, and um, for the first time in 16, going on 17 years, I've been away uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Sunday and New Year's Eve, New Year's Sunday. So, um, yeah, that was an adjustment. Even though I wasn't here, I was feeling you. Yeah, I was, I was here in, in so many ways, and it is good to be, be home. And I'm very thankful for Tim filling in in all respects. It's, uh, it's great to work with such dedicated people. If you're here for the first time this morning, it's good to have you with us. We're going to be starting a new series of messages uh, called Earthen Glory, and it's from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians the letter of Paul to the Ephesians were just called Ephesians, E-P-H-E-S-I-A-N-S in your New Testament. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 this morning. It was interesting, if you were here and you heard Christine welcome and uh, give us some updates and announcements, you may have heard her mention that uh, Pastor Don is retired and we're going to have a celebration on the 22nd. Well and then she 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 qualified that she wanted you to know that it was Pastor Don and not Pastor John. Did you pick that up? Well that's because I made mention of it last service because in the first service when she shared that, I thought she said Pastor John is retired. And I kind of jerked up and looked around like that, you know, because I was startled by it. And, uh, you know, if Pastor Don had been standing beside her, I would have immediately had the perspective I needed to realize she was not talking about Pastor John, but Pastor Don. And lest you think this is just my problem, like I have a hearing problem, even when I was much younger and had excellent hearing, we lived next door, to a guy who was, well, his name was Don. And every time his wife would, if I were in the backyard on my side of the fence, and she would say, Don, well, half the time I heard her saying, John, and uh, we would have a short conversation. In fact, and this is, I would never tell you anything but the truth such as I know it, but in the first service, somebody who knows me very well looked right at me and called me Don. (laughs) And then he began to apologize, and I said, what's the problem? He said, I called you Don. I said, oh, I thought you called me John. (laughs) Perspective really makes a difference. There are lots of things that can give us perspective. In 1997, a conference took me to Chicago for the very first time. I'd never been to Chicago. I got there a little early, and I devoted my free time, which was one day, to seeing the city, such as a guy without a caddy or tour guide can do. and. I thought it was one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It is a big city and there's lots of glass and marble and things, Um, and then there are things about it that are just like any other city. Lots of people, lots of congestion, lots of noise, lots of construction, jackhammers, big roaring trucks, and you know when you're down in the middle, down in the streets itself, it just, it's a little You know, you're like like an animal, caught in the headlights a, a bit, you know, trying to maneuver. And, of course, that was my experience even as I made my way to Sears Tower. Sears Tower, now it's called Willis Tower, not near as magical. But Sears Tower, as it was called in 1997, is 108 stories tall. That's 1,451 feet. Sears Tower, in 1997, was not just the tallest building in Chicago, but it was the tallest building in New York and the tallest building in the world. And I went from the hustle and bustle and the noise and the building and the congestion of the small streets, as it were, mounted a very crowded elevator. The congestion continued, if you will, and then all of a sudden when it stopped at the top on the top floor, immediately I could see the vista but then you made yourself your way out to the observation deck and and the views were breathtaking. I mean it just is incredible how far you can see from 1,451 feet and the tallest building at the time in the world. And as I looked in every direction It was just amazing what the sight could see, and it changed my entire perspective. It added a dimension to my experience of the city, even my perception of the city, even my awareness of my place in the city to have that kind of perspective. We need perspective. We need perspective in life. We need perspective as Christians. Each and every day, not just on special occasions or special trips or trips to the big city, we need perspective all the time. City life gives us a better perspective on things human than divine. Even in Visalia, we can get mired, you know, we can get kind of slowed down and stuck in the daily details of life and the hustle-bustle of our own little world, and it is almost as though the maps don't go beyond Visalia or even beyond our home or beyond our place of work sometimes, and it seems like that's all there is, and it's down in those details of daily city life, if if you will, that things of perspective are very, very human. But if you leave the city You get outside the city and go into the high country. And this is just one of many shots. This is why I like to trek and go backpacking or go biking up in the foothills. Sometimes when you backpack with somebody for the first time, you know, that's where you carry everything that you need to survive and live on your back. And you hike along for long times. And some people who are new to it, they walk like this. Do you see what... They walk with their heads down all the time. And if you ask them a question, they go, yes, yes? What do you want? Or biking, sometimes we're biking along and I'm looking all around while I bike and I'm seeing the vistas and the horizon and I see wildlife and I'll say, hey, did you see that? He's just, you know, got his eyes on his will all the time. And that's the way we can be sometimes. And God needs to pull us out of all of the details of our little world and give us some perspective, such as we get when we're taken to a high tower or to a high mountain. And I chose this picture because of the sense of space and dimension. You can almost drown in all of the air. And all of the space, let alone the three lakes you see there and those high peaks that are like, you know, a perimeter wall on a towering city. And when you come back into the city, you come with a a different sense of what you've seen and what the world is made of and who you are, and it adds something. You know, it adds something. To the way you see yourself in this world. Perspective. Perspective is important to how we interpret things, interpret the meaning of things, the importance of the things around us, what their play is in the bigger picture of what we call reality and existence. The Apostle Paul. In Ephesians, in the opening verses of this very first chapter, it's almost like he takes us out of the city and he takes us up to a high peak or a high tower. He says, look down on all of that. But more than that, look up and around and take it all in. And in a sense, theologically and spiritually, he gives us a truer perspective of who we are. Almost like if you were away on retreat for a while. And from there, you could look down on the city, just as if you go up into the high country, as as I enjoy doing at night, you can actually, if you're high enough, you can look down on this valley and you can see the lights of the city. And in a way, Paul takes us away from the city so that we can see the city more clearly. And he does that in the very first three chapters of his letter. And then in the last three chapters, he leads us back into the city. And with the perspective that we've gained, we look at some of the realities of everybody's everyday life and Christian conduct. And so we come out of Ephesians with a with this clearer picture and perspective on who God is and the world and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and Christian conduct and the means of salvation and the significance of the church and who we are, not only in the world, but to one another and within the church to the world, and spiritual warfare and the cosmology and ontology of existence. All in this sixth chapter letter. So I want you to be reading it. It will refresh and encourage you. It will give you perspective. And you need to see yourself, you need to read it as though it were an intimate communication and message to you. And it is. And yet, this letter of Ephesians is different from Paul's other letters. It's almost like a t- to whom it may concern. And it is actually, we believe, addressed to Ephesians, but for various technical reasons, which I won't bore you with, we believe it was also meant to circulate to other churches in the area. Here's a picture of Ephesus, that great city, can you recognize where that is? You can see up in your upper left-hand corner the boot of Italy and Rome, the word Rome, the city of Rome in red. That gives you some sense of where Ephesus is in relation to Rome. Ephesus was the third largest city in the world. Next to Rome, who was number one, Then came Alexandria in Egypt, and then came Ephesus. And remember, Paul spent two years in the city of Ephesus. In fact, he experienced some really trying circumstances. People didn't always take kindly to Paul. And he was even drawn into the arena and tried before the provincial governor while he was there. Ephesus was a pagan city. That means that the believers there, I mean the people there, unlike the believers, they believed in many gods, the Greco and Roman gods. And in that scheme of things, they wanted very much the favor and the the good fortune of the gods, and they would in their superstition and fear, they would offer sacrifices. They would submit the interpretation of those sacrifices to the diviners who would open the, the animal up and read its its intrals to interpret, or the way birds flew as the augurs interpreted them. And these people hungered to know God and to know what God was all about and how the gods were so to speak, uh, disposed to them. And it's into this situation Paul writes to the Christians. It is amazing what we read. And I would just, uh, with this vast vista and perspective that Paul gives us in the opening of this chapter, I would like to read just one sentence this morning. But I have to tell you, this one sentence is 202 words long. This one sentence begins in verse 3 and goes all the way to verse 14. In our English translations, this one sentence is often divided into three or four sentences. But in the Greek language in which Paul wrote this letter, it is one sentence. You must keep that in mind, because in this one sentence, it's almost as though Paul is breathless in his praise, in his doxology, which is a way of saying glorifying God. And why? Well, he tells us because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. In fact, in this one sentence of 202 words, Paul mentions Jesus Christ 13 times, 13 times in one sentence, one breathtaking sentence, as he reveals to us, speaks to us, unfolds to us God's plan and purpose in Jesus Christ, which was hatched in the secret. Council of God's own mind before the creation and foundation of the world. And it was there that God determined and decreed to do such things in, 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 and through, 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 and by, by, by Jesus Christ for the world, for all of us. And that is carried out in Christ. And again and again and again, 11 times, 11 times, Paul says, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in whom, through whom, by whom. It's all, all, all in Christ. Here in this one sentence, we begin with God We see God's plan implemented and fulfilled in eternity in Jesus Christ, and we're brought down to our own response to what God has done in Jesus Christ in verses 13 and 14, and we're told of the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of God's plan in Christ within our lives, that we belong to him. It is so beautiful. Let's read it together, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And grace is his favor, his generosity, with which he has blessed us Given freely to us would be another way of translating that. In the one whom he loves, which is referring to Jesus Christ, in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In other words, through redemption, we're recovered, we're restored. If we're in slavery, we're bought out of slavery and returned home. Redemption is a beautiful word of restoration. And this has been done through the purchase price of his blood, effecting the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Could our sin exhaust his generosity? Could our sins exhaust what he has paid In blood for us? No, never, because it's according to the riches, the vast wealth of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan For the fullness of time to unite or to head up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, this plan is, the scope of this plan is encompassing of all dimensions and all time there's not a plan out there a plan b or a plan that could come in effect that somehow is going to catch us in the cogs of fate which are not represented here everything is here and it is in jesus christ in this one sentence because in him we have obtained verse 11 an inheritance having been predestined which means that the purpose of god was put and decreed into action in advance. And it was all in Christ. Never separate that notion. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the pledge of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow. It really is. You've you got to reflect on it. You've got to reflect on it. It amazes me how much there is to be experienced in that one sentence of 202 words and 13 mentions of Jesus Christ in which is involved is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit all in harmonious activity to act in love toward the world and to pull everyone into the plan of God, which is a plan of good and beauty, which has been ordained, decreed, launched, and have become effective in Christ. That's a beautiful sentence, and we cannot escape this fact. God does everything for us in Christ. And that is why it is so important for us to appreciate that we in Christ should do everything too. If God does everything in Christ, we should do everything too. We should do our all in him. That is just, it's like such a big profound idea right here that it's easy to overlook, but that's what we keep hearing uh, over and over. This is the way God has chosen to work. This is the way God has chosen to bless. This is the way. In the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, God reveals himself, his plan, his will. He implements what he is due. When he's raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, he pours out the Holy Spirit on his people called the church And he begins to continue to be effective in fulfilling the plan of God for all of us. And yet... Sometimes we get our heads down like the guy riding on the bike that I ride with or the guy I hike with that has his head down and he's just looking at the dust he kicks up with his feet or we get our head down in our work or we get our head down in some difficult situation and we get our head down in these things that overwhelm us and cause us to think of ourselves as very small, very puny, insignificant. In, how can we be insignificant and how can another in your life in this building right now, or out there, or around the world? How can anyone be insignificant, inconsequential, unimportant? If this is the plan that God launched in his heart, implemented in the person of Jesus Christ, is carrying out through his Holy Spirit and his church, how can anyone be insignificant at that cost, at that price, at that compass, at that dimension. And it means that each and everything we do, even little things that the world thinks is, you know, you're just a nobody. What you do is not important. Really, is that true? The little things that you do, even in your own home or with your own family, they contribute to the development of a character, of a person. If that person is in Christ, that person is eternal. Even if that person isn't in Christ, that person can make a difference. We we never know where a great leader, a great scientist, a great musician, a great person is going to come from, but they always come usually in some sense from the humblest of means. Somebody invested, somebody believed in, somebody saw something in that person. And why don't we? Why don't we realize that our child, I'm not talking about being a helicopter parent in which your child can do no wrong, but I am talking about seeing the potential because you have perspective in your heart as to who that child is in the eyes of God and in the eyes of his master plan and the value that he places upon that child or as he places upon you as you see yourself in the mirror or the person sitting at the end of the row or the person out there on the road or the person that you haven't met yet that person that we like to say I don't know Strangers, because everybody is a friend to me. And really, why not when we have this perspective of what God is doing in us and in this world? Really, if you think about it, it changes everything. And that's what perspective often does it helps to unite us with the grander things in reality that we're missing that we're not taking into consideration, that we're not seeing because we are operating on a plan and a perception of reality that is bigger than our own. But do you notice that when we're driven by our own petty plans, okay, I I won't call your plans petty, but mine are petty. And when I'm driven by those small, petty plans, it's funny. They just, everything gets, I always get smaller. It's like I'm folded into myself, into my own selfishness. It just seems to be a part of our nature sometimes, unless something of that grander perspective pulls us outside of ourselves and reintroduces us to the grander things of the world to which we belong. How much more in Jesus Christ? How much more? If one person gets hold of that, if that seed is planted in one person in here, that is a power and a potential that we can't even imagine. Every grand and great experiment in life has been born with an idea, what idea is bigger than that? And if that idea gets into your heart and you realize you are at the center of God's plan in Jesus Christ, and what if not just one, but two And what if not two, but three? And what if not three, but four, and five, and six, and 10, and 15, and 20? And you know what you have? You have the church. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. He breaks this sentence down into three important expressions. The first one is in verse 3. By the way, I know these are important expressions because… and and people rearrange it in different ways, but there are three important participles that the whole structure hangs on in the Greek language. But in our Bible, they're very clear expressions. The first is in verse 3. He, that is God, in Christ, blessed us. Blessed us. Verse 3. And then in verse 5, he that is God in Christ predestined us. And then, I'm sorry, did I? Yes, and then in verse 9, he that is God in Christ made himself known to us. Those are three huge ideas that are developed in this first sentence here in Ephesians. He blessed us. He predestined us. He made himself, made his plan, made his heart, made his love, made it all known to us. And it's all in Christ. Let me just pick one thing out of the blessings, because many of the blessings are mentioned here, but it all takes place in Christ. And it's described as in the heavenly places. The heavenly places we think of over the rainbow. (laughs) But the heavenly places, as we'll see in the letter uh, that Paul writes The heavenly places are not dimensional as we tend to think. We, thin, we tend to think in three dimensions. So we think spatially and geographically. There's a different kind of geography going on here that defies our sense of space and geography. And the same thing takes place in Christ, that these things are all in Christ. And just as we are in Visalia and we're in our, so to speak, paltry or humble existence in these uh, bodies, these containers, at the same time, through Christ, through God, what he's done in Jesus Christ, we are called and we are told that we are in Christ. That's almost a geographical placement. It's, it's almost like Paul is using location language. To help us understand that wherever we go, like here, we're in Visalia, but if we travel to our big city, Fresno, or we go to the even bigger city in San Francisco, or we leave state and we go somewhere else, or we go up into the mountains, or we're just going from our house to work, wherever we go, we are in that place, but we are also in Christ. Christ. And that is a powerful, powerful message to us of our identity, the condition of our existence, and our status. It also lets us know, just as he says here in, uh, when he talks about our adoption and that we have been chosen. Boy, that rings a bell when you think of adoption, doesn't it? The choosing of a child, to love that child, to take that child and say, we are going to take you into our family. We're going to give you a place, a status, a location in our lives that is immutable and unchangeable. And in that location, you will belong to us and we will belong to you. We will give you our name. You will take our status and our identity. You will have legal standing. You will never be bereft again. Wherever you go, you will bear that name, which will be a representation of who you are in this world and all of the merits and things of our name and our household and our family and our life, they belong to you. Our heritage, our legacy, and our inheritance belongs to you. All of those pieces are mentioned here in this one sentence, in Christ. A couple months ago, a family in our church, they have Uh, four boys, and they adopted a couple of girls. And they had a big party the day that the adoption was final. And there, you know, uh, next to the cake, the cupcakes, the finger foods, all the balloons and the confetti and stuff were pictures of the family all together with the judge and the official certificate, the legal document that sealed that adoption. This is your legal, this is your legal paper. And when you think of it, And your rights and capabilities in Christ, you must also think of the joy and the love of God in calling you His child. If you don't get those things, if you don't have that hope and assurance from this vast master plan in His blessing, in His predestination, in His making known, if you don't get that, you're living deficiently You've got to put a little effort into this. You've got to put a little faith into it. You've got to take this to heart and believe it and start living as the person you are meant to be in Christ. Because you'll never glow with the power and the reality of God if you don't take this to heart. We only need one to begin this, one person. It began with one, Jesus Christ in his incarnation, and that 12, and then those 24, and then the 120, and then generations, and now we're here, but we're tired, and we're worn out, and we're, we're doled by the world. We've lost our faith and our hope. We don't have that power in us. We aren't willing to stand alone. We aren't willing to rough it in Christ because we know we belong to him. we're his child. God does it all for us in Christ. Let's do our all in him, too. He does it all in him. Let's do our all in him. He did it all. That's the message. So what are we doing if we're doing our all outside of Christ, outside of his power, outside of his heart, outside of his mind, outside of his will? If Jesus is like the crazy relative or a distant relative or someone we visit on holidays, and we don't live in his life, real life, true life, eternal life, or in his power. We just creep along in our own strength, but we're not doing it in Jesus. God did it all in him. That counts for something. That matters in and of itself, not only all that he did, but that we should not be shy of doing our all in him, too. I'm just going to give you four quick things. One, in Christ we can praise God. What if our days were filled with more praise and thanksgiving? Gratitude is the proper response to grace. And this is all of grace. We didn't merit, we didn't earn it, we didn't pull ourselves up as we Americans like to say by our bootstraps. This was lavished on us, given to us. It was decided before we were even a twinkle in our parents' eyes. What if we were to praise him, and that praise were to seek down into our soul, get under our skin, gurgle forth effervescently enjoy? joy? What What kind of blessing would we be? And that brings me to the second point. In Christ, we are to be a people of blessing. We are bought, we are, we're born by blessing. This blessing. Blessed be the God who blessed us in every spiritual place in the heavenlies with every blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. How in How did the church in America – how has it become, at first glance, recollection, consideration, how has it become something less or different than the blessing of God to people who do not know God, who do not know Jesus Christ? How is it that people recoil at the mention of Christian or Jesus? That's not because of the life of blessing. That is not because of the life of love. That is not because of the life of grace. When did we become police for God? Jesus is a big boy. He can take care of himself, and so can his Father. We don't have to take those things into our own control. And be angry about people. Or judge people in advance. Let him do that. Let us be the people of grace because we've been born of grace. Let us be the people of love because we've been born of love. Let us be grace community people because we are grace people. Let's let the power of grace and love in Jesus Christ do the changing. Let's let God change people and let us be changed by that perspective. When we are full of God, when we are full of what Paul calls the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, this is, he says, when you're full, when He is in control, then There's an outcome. There's an effect. There's an impact. And how does Paul describe that? I'm going to tell you. Love. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. That's the fruit. Not anger. Not ugliness. Not bitterness, not sourness, not condemnation, not judgment, not eyeing somebody else and making sure they're living their life perfectly, as though that were more important than looking into our own lives. Let's be people of blessing. Third, in Christ, we're to live and do our all. That means live by faith, trusting in Him, letting Him guide our thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. The little things do matter, especially when we do them in the power and in faith in Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing, the two most important days in your life. This is attributed to Mark Twain. I haven't been able to source it, but it says the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. The day you are born and the day you find out why. This could be that day for some of you. To find out why you were put on this earth, why you were born. Because you've just read in that one sentence God's vision, God's desire, God's purpose, God's plan, God's hope for you in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll never forget Ephesians 2. One, chapter one, verses three through 14, but that it's one verse, one sentence from God that says it all and took Paul's breath away. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, but if God has spoken to your heart, you know he's not over the rainbow, he's not far away, He's here, He's present. Let that give you some perspective. As you think about what God might be speaking to your heart this morning, I get passionate about this because it comes right out of my own experience in life. When I, some 43 years ago, gave my life to Jesus Christ, I have as much passion and energy for that as ever. If you've not begun that walk, that journey, if you've not discovered why you were born, we invite you to come. We're going to be up here right after I say amen. If you'd like to come forward, talk to us or pray for us. I'll be up here, pastoral staff, elders and their wives. Let me, let me pray for us. God bless you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love for us in Jesus. And the work of your will in our lives through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this vision of who we are and who we can be in Christ. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you, Father, for such love. And we do it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, God bless you.